Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Poison of Subjectivism by C.S. Lewis Part 2 And what of the second modern objection? That the ethical standards of different cultures differ so widely that there is no common tradition at all. The answer is that this is a lie, a good, solid, resounding lie. If a man will go into a library and spend a few days with the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, he will soon discover the massive unanimity of the practical reason in man. From the Babylonian Hymn to Samos, from the Laws of Manu, the Book of the Dead, the Analects, the Stoics, the Platonists, from Australian Aborigines and Redskins, he will collect the same triumphantly monotonous denunciations of oppression, murder, treachery, and falsehood. The same injunctions of kindness to the aged, the young, and the weak, of almsgiving and impartiality, and honesty. He may be a little surprised, I certainly was, to find that precepts of mercy are more frequent than precepts of justice. But he will no longer doubt that there is such a thing as the law of nature. There are, of course, differences. There are even blindnesses in particular cultures, just as there are savages who cannot count up to twenty. But the pretense that we are presented with a mere chaos, though no outline of a universally accepted value shows through, is simply false, and should be contradicted in season and out of season wherever it is met. Far from finding a chaos, we find exactly what we should expect if good is indeed something objective and reason the organ whereby it is apprehended. That is, a substantial agreement with considerable local differences of emphasis, and, perhaps, no one code that includes everything. The two grand methods of obscuring this agreement are these. First, you can concentrate on those divergences about sexual morality which most serious moralists regard as belonging to positive rather than to natural law, but which rouse strong emotions. Differences about the definition of incest or between polygamy and monogamy come under this head. It is untrue to say that the Greeks thought sexual perversion innocent. The continual tittering of Plato is really more evidential than the stern prohibition of Aristotle. Men titter thus only about what they regard as at least a peccadillo. The jokes about drunkenness in Pickwick, far from proving that the 19th century English thought it innocent, prove the reverse. There is an enormous difference of degree between the Greek view of perversion and the Christian, but there is not opposition. The second method is to treat as differences in the judgment of value what are really differences in belief about fact. Thus, human sacrifice, or persecution of witches, are cited as evidence of a radically different morality. But the real difference lies elsewhere. We do not hunt witches because we disbelieve in their existence. We do not kill men to avert pestilence because we do not think pestilence can thus be averted. We do sacrifice men in war, and we do hunt spies and traitors. So far, I have been considering the objections which unbelievers bring against the doctrine of objective value, 
or the law of nature. But in our days, we must be prepared to meet objections from Christians, too. Humanism and liberalism are coming to be used simply as terms of disapprobation, and both are likely to be so used of the position I am taking up. Behind them lurks a real theological problem. If we accept the primary platitudes of practical reason as the unquestioned premises of all action, are we thereby trusting our own reason so far that we ignore the fall? And are we retrogressively turning our absolute allegiance away from a person to an abstraction? As regards the fall, I submit that the general tenor of Scripture does not encourage us to believe that our knowledge of the law has been depraved in the same degree as our power to fulfill it. He would be a brave man who claimed to realize the fallen condition of man more clearly than St. Paul. In that very chapter, Romans 7, where he asserts most strongly our inability to keep the moral law, he also asserts most confidently that we perceive the law's goodness and rejoice in it according to the inward man. Our righteousness may be filthy and ragged, but Christianity gives us no ground for holding that our perceptions of right are in the same condition. They may, no doubt, be impaired. But there is a difference between imperfect sight and blindness. A theology which goes about to represent our practical reason as radically unsound is heading for disaster. If we once admit that what God means by goodness is sheerly different from what we judge to be good, there is no difference left between pure religion and devil worship. The other objection is much more formidable. If we once grant that our practical reason is really reason, and that its fundamental imperatives are as absolute and categorical as they claim to be, then unconditional allegiance to them is the duty of man. So is absolute allegiance to God. And these two allegiances must, somehow, be the same. But how is the relation between God and the moral law to be represented? To say that the moral law is God's law is no final solution. Are these things right because God commands them, or does God command them because they are right? If the first, if good is to be defined as what God commands, then the goodness of God himself is emptied of meaning, and the commands of an omnipotent fiend would have the same claim on us as those of the righteous Lord. If the second, then we seem to be admitting a cosmic diarchy or even making God himself the mere executor of a law somehow external and antecedent to his own being. Both views are intolerable. At this point, we must remind ourselves that Christian theology does not believe God to be a person. It believes him to be such that in him a trinity of persons is consistent with a unity of deity. In that sense, it believes him to be something very different from a person, just as a cube in which six squares are consistent with unity of the body is different from a square. Flatlanders attempting to imagine a cube would either imagine the six squares coinciding and thus destroy their distinctness, or else imagine them set out side by side and thus destroy the unity. Our difficulties about the Trinity are much of the same kind. 
It is therefore possible that the duality which seems to force itself upon us when we think, first, of our Father in heaven, and, secondly, of the self-evident imperatives of the moral law, is not a mere error, but a real, though inadequate and creaturely perception of things that would necessarily be two in any mode of being which enters our experience, but which are not so divided in the absolute being of the superpersonal God. When we attempt to think of a person and a law, we are compelled to think of this person either as obeying the law or as making it. And when we think of him as making it, we are compelled to think of him either as making it in conformity to some yet more ultimate pattern of goodness, in which case that pattern, and not he, would be supreme, or else as making it arbitrarily, by a sic volo, sic jubio, thus I will, thus I command, in which case he would be neither good nor wise. But it is probably just here that our categories betray us. It would be idle with our merely mortal resources to attempt a positive correction of our categories. Ambularvi in mirabilibus suprame. I walk in things too wonderful for me. But it might be permissible to lay down two negations. That God neither obeys nor creates the moral law. The good is uncreated. It never could have been otherwise. It has in it no shadow of contingency. It lies, as Plato said, on the other side of existence. It is the Rita of the Hindus by which the gods themselves are divine, the Tao of the Chinese from which all realities proceed. But we, favored beyond the wisest pagans, know what lies beyond existence, what admits no contingency, what lends divinity to all else, what is the ground of all existence, is not simply a law, but also a begetting love, a love begotten, and the love which, being between these two, is also imminent in all those who are caught up to share the unity of their self-caused life. God is not merely good, but goodness. Goodness is not merely divine, but God. These may seem fine-spun speculations, yet I believe that nothing short of this can save us. A Christianity which does not see moral and religious experience converging to meet at infinity, not at a negative infinity, but in the positive infinity of the living yet superpersonal God, has nothing, in the long run, to divide it from devil worship. And a philosophy which does not accept value as eternal and objective can lead us only to ruin. Nor is the matter of merely speculative importance. Many a popular planner on a democratic platform, many a wild-eyed scientist in a democratic laboratory means, in the last resort, just what the fascist means. He believes that good means whatever men are conditioned to approve. He believes that it is the function of him and his kind to condition men to create consciences by eugenics, psychological manipulation of infants, state education, and mass propaganda. Because he is confused, he does not yet fully realize that those who create 
conscience, cannot be subject to conscience themselves. But he must be awake to the logic of his position sooner or later. And when he does, what barrier remains between us and the final division of the race into a few conditioners who stand themselves outside morality, and the many conditioned in whom such morality as the experts choose is produced at the experts' pleasure. If good means only the local ideology, how can those who invent the local ideology be guided by any idea of good themselves? The very idea of freedom presupposes some objective moral law which overarches rulers and ruled alike. Subjectivism about values is eternally incompatible with democracy. We and our rulers are of one kind only so long as we are subject to one law. But if there is no law of nature, the ethos of any society is the creation of its rulers, educators, and conditioners, and every creator stands above and outside his own creation. Unless we return to the crude and nursery-like belief in objective values, we perish. If we do, we may live, and such a return might have one minor advantage. If we believed in the absolute reality of elementary moral platitudes, we should value those who solicit our votes by other standards that have recently been in fashion. While we believe that good is something to be invented, we demand of our rulers such qualities as vision, dynamism, creativity, and the like. If we returned to the objective view, we should demand qualities much rarer and much more beneficial. Virtue, knowledge, diligence, and skill. Vision is for sale, or claims to be for sale, everywhere. But give me a man who will do a day's work for a day's pay, who will refuse bribes, who will not make up his facts, and who has learned his job. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>